So out on the western side here, this is where our services area lives. So out here we've got the compressors for the air conditioner and for the hot water system. And then inside the garage is where we find the electric vehicle and the battery and the inverter system. This is Howard Elston. Howard and his wife Libby are the owners of a house that was built from the ground up with sustainability in mind. It's been built from raw materials and the design itself draws on solar energy to power their home and even their car. So what we've got at the moment is the inverter takes the power from obviously from the solar panels and then decides where it's going to send it. Uh, currently the car's plugged in so it's charging solar energy from the roof going into the car and then the excess because we're producing more than the car needs at the moment is going into the battery so I can see it's charging at the moment. So the clever technology coming through now is if I've got excess stored in the battery rather than just leave it I can export it at night. So I'll run the battery down, export to the grid and then the next day the sun comes up and I'll refill it. The Elston's home is an example of what can be achieved when we prioritise sustainability and energy efficiency in new buildings. While not everyone can undertake this kind of project from scratch, in recent years millions of Australians have made the switch to rooftop solar. And this is just the beginning, as technology solutions like battery packs are set to grow in coming years. I'm Jane Ryan, and this is Rewired from Arena, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia. This season, we'll be looking at the technologies set to change how we create and use power, like energy storage solutions, how manufacturing can transition into renewables, and the untapped potential of hydrogen. In this episode, we begin with the home and the ways we can all contribute to a clean energy future. Howard and Libby Elston, who live in the Melbourne suburb of East Ringwood, have taken an end-to-end -end approach in living sustainably. I suppose my interest in the environment it originally started working as a chemical engineer because in, in those days it was all about efficiency. So it was trying to squeeze the most you could out of the energy you are buying. You begin to look at that from the point of view, well, what can I do at home? And that's where I think my current interest is what can people do at home? They don't have to wait for somebody else to do things. They can go, all right, well, in my house, I can be an eco-warrior and I can make a difference by doing things in the way I live and the sorts of house that I build, the sorts of house that I live in. So we became interested in that because we did a bit of a renovation in our previous home and then it just reached a point where we couldn't do anything more with it. So the, the interest then became, like, can we do something from a blank sheet of paper? What would that look like? And that's where the current house has come from, working with a sustainable builder to say, what would a cutting edge 21st century sustainable home look like? The idea was to ensure energy efficiency was embedded into the very design of the house. And the core principle that guided their decisions was something called passive solar. Which is all about using the sun's energy in winter to keep you warm and then designing the house so that it doesn't get as much sun in during the summer, so it tends to keep cool. So really what you're after is a house that wants to stay warm in winter and wants to stay cool in summer. So you start with that design. It's all around the eaves, the insulation, the thermal mass you put into it. 
thermal mass is a material's ability to absorb and store heat energy. The floor in Howard's house is polished concrete, which helps to regulate temperature. Uh, polished concrete floors are great in summer because it maintains about a 18, 17 or 18 degree temperature on it. Uh, and then in winter, um, because the sun's coming in, it warms it up, so it'll actually go above that. So it's, it's not frosty cold. People look at it and think, oh, it must be terrible in, in winter. But because you've got the sun coming in, it warms up really quickly. And I know with my temperature sensors on the north wall, when the, when the sun's hitting the wall, it can get up to 40 degrees out there on the wall in winter. So that's a lot of energy coming in. So the floor is not a problem in winter. And in summer, it's, it, it just feels quite cool. Howard and Libby made it a priority to use as much recycled material as possible. The bricks in their walls are made from recycled timber waste. They even salvaged hardwood timber from the original house that stood on the block when they bought the land. This was a conscious decision because instead of demolishing the building, it was carefully dismantled over two weeks. The reclaimed timber was then used for things like doors and window frames. These design choices give the building character and it's all powered by a combination of solar panels and a battery system. And rounding out their sustainable lifestyle, Howard and Libby also drive an electric vehicle, a Nissan Leaf, which is charged by renewable energy too. We've come up with a package uh, solar panel and battery arrangement. It's a, it's a nominal 7.8 kilowatt solar panel system hooked up to a 9.8 kilowatt hour nominal 10 kilowatt battery. So the, the sizing for that was that's pretty much what we can fit on the roof. And then the battery that goes with our system, that's the minimum size. How we operate with the, the Solar Plus battery, it's, it's a bit like a hierarchy system. The hot water system comes on in the middle of the day. So it'll, it'll run for a couple of hours. Uh, so it takes solar power from that. Uh, the house, obviously, that the system's set up to self-consume. So if there's any solar or any battery, it'll go to the house first. Uh, after that would be the car. So we would charge that during the day. You know, nice sunny day like today, we'd easily fill up the car in a couple of hours. After that, it goes to the battery, and that gets us through the evening and night time. And then anything over and above that during the day gets exported. So by the time you do that, we're a negligible consumer. We, we might consume up to one kilowatt hour a day. And with the addition of their almost 10 kilowatt hours of battery storage, Howard and Libby are ready for anything. So we could go, I would imagine, at least a day if there was no power at all. And if it was a reasonable temperature and we didn't use any heating or cooling, that would be longer than that. It would just be keeping the lights on, doing a bit of basic cooking. Um, the hot water system would kick in, but that doesn't take all that much, maybe two kilowatt hours out of the 10. So we could survive for quite some time. And you're probably wondering, how much does an energy-efficient house like this actually cost to run? So in terms of, of our operating costs for the house, we, we peak in winter when the solar generation is much lower than it would be in summer. So our maximum bill was just over $100 for a month, and that's to run a two-bedroom house, all the heating, all the hot water, and an electric vehicle. And seeing as roughly 40 to $50 of that is actually a connection fee, which you'd have to pay if you used no electricity, then we think $60 a month for all the energy for a house is pretty good in the middle of winter. 
And now we've moved into summer, so we're at peak production. So we're actually generating a credit. Last month was a credit of $70, which more than paid for the connection fee. So we're, we're running a, a credit on our energy costs. So this, this house is actually generating money for us and we're living in it. We're still running all the, any cooling, not that we need much, all our hot water, all our cooking, all the electricity, plus the electric car, and we're in a credit. Howard and Libby's home is actually one of three houses they've built on the block. The most impressive part about the project is that the entire construction process has been carried out using solar power. So we didn't use any grid energy. We used a, an off-grid battery system to power the site. Because we couldn't connect to the grid immediately, we thought, well, there must be an alternative. So it was just an experiment. Uh, and so that continues today. So everything done on the site is done with solar. And Howard says living in an energy-efficient home has changed the way he and Libby think about energy usage and their connection to the environment. You get to appreciate nature more. I think you're more connected to the outside world because the house is working with nature and you're working with the house to get the best result possible. And I think you're just thinking more about consumption of energy and consumption of water, about how to do the right thing. Having a house that helps you do that makes it so much easier. So from that perspective, it's light, it's open, it's airy. We just love the feel of it. Not everyone has the capacity to build their own energy-neutral home. But there are still actions we can all take to play our part in the energy transition. ARENA is supporting the transition through projects like Mervac's Net Zero Energy housing estate, which will see 49 townhouses built in the Melbourne suburb of Altona North, and they'll all be net zero energy. Across the country, more than 2 million homes already have rooftop solar panels, and the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO, is predicting that by 2040, nearly a quarter of all energy generation will be from rooftop solar. That's a huge shift from our current 3%. There are also many vital large-scale solar projects being developed across the country, which we'll talk about in a later episode. Australia is the world leader when it comes to the uptake of rooftop solar, and our renewable energy capacity is growing 10 times faster than the world average on a per capita basis. We already have the most decentralised electricity system in the world, and we're the most enthusiastic adopters of these technologies. The solar you have on your home, and that new battery you're thinking of installing, is an example of Distributed Energy Resources, or DER, and it's set to change the way we generate and distribute power. I'll let Darren Miller, the CEO of ARENA, explain. You can think about it as consumer-centred energy or consumer-generated and managed energy, whereas the old world had large fossil fuel plants in distant places, transporting energy back to your home in, a, in sort of a one-directional way. Distributed energy or customer-centred energy talks about a market where customers are also producers of energy as well as consumers and have an intimate role to play in the operation um, of the electricity system, albeit done by computers, done by software, and, and really enhancing the lifestyle of customers through cheaper, uh, cleaner uh, electricity and energy at their homes. 
But while Australia is making great progress when it comes to solar adoption, the rapid uptake of distributed resources is already placing strain on our energy system. So as we get higher and higher penetration of solar rooftops, and Australia is already right up there as a world leader in terms of the penetration rate, it does get a bit more difficult to manage the stability of the system. But there are solutions. This is Dr Alan Finkel, Australia's chief scientist. One is that as householders bring on batteries so that they can get the optimum economic value out of their solar panels, that flattens the demand load and makes it much easier for the operator to manage. Another solution going forward is if we arrange for new solar panels on rooftops and their inverters to be visible to the operator through an internet connection back to AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, then the operator would have this huge variable generation source and could get millions of homes to balance the uh, level of electricity they're putting into the grid versus diverting to their own home batteries. So, yes, in the short term, we're seeing challenges associated with high solar rooftop penetration. But in the long term, as we learn how to take advantage of not just the solar rooftops, but batteries in homes and communication between those distributed energy resources and the operator, they can end up contributing to the stability of the system. So all the forecasts show that rooftop solar will continue to be popular and people will continue to install uh, systems on, on roofs without solar and replacement systems will be larger and more efficient than old systems. So there's a uh, an acknowledgement that this is what customers want. Customers are taking sort of matters into their own hands, both from a cost and an environmental perspective. The challenge is that as we have more and more of it put into the system, it starts to create issues in the local distribution networks. And these are things that the network companies and the market operator are very focused on solving over the next few years. The danger being that if we don't allow the network to expand or accommodate solar, that it'll have a natural ceiling to its growth. And that's not something that we want to see. Customers deserve to have choice and deserve to be able to take up these opportunities over time. And so the market needs to respond to allow that to happen. And Arena's very involved in some of the smarter technologies that are allowing solar to be managed in a uh, digital kind of way to to ensure that um, there's no sort of barrier to further adoption. One way of dealing with the increased pressure on the network is through demand response. That is, creating incentives for people to reduce their power consumption during peak times. In partnership with the market operator, Arena is supporting the development of 10 demand response pilot programs. Here's Dr Finkel. Uh, Australia is doing more and more in demand response. It's being led by AEMO. And it's, it's really good because it means that if you're at a situation where it's very hot, lots of air conditioners going and there's a risk that the system is going to have a gigawatt more demand than is available from all the generation sources, you're better off winding down some of that demand in a controlled fashion than having an unplanned blackout. So demand response is really important. Typically, you only get a few hours of load shifting, but that's often all you need. Um, You can ask people to turn off their air conditions or give you control over turning off their air conditioners. But eventually, 
when they're down or off for too long, people get hot and they just turn them up again. Uh, you can ask industry to back off on a process, but eventually if they're at risk of their process cooling down so far that it would suffer damage, they're going to turn it on again. So demand response is extremely important. It can help avoid the necessity of building distribution assets and generation assets to meet extreme peaks, and that saves a huge amount of money. It does have a time window limitation. The other thing that's important for people to remember, demand response just shifts the load. It doesn't eliminate the load, so it doesn't reduce your total energy consumption and therefore it doesn't reduce your carbon dioxide emissions associated with that energy consumption. So it's a management tool for running the electricity system cost effectively. It's not part of your transition to a low emissions future directly. It is indirectly because you can use the solar and the wind resources more effectively, but it's not part of reducing the generation emissions. Demand response is really powerful when we're in a world of increasingly distributed energy resources. This is Anna Scarbeck, the CEO of ClimateWorks. So mixing digital technology and the ability to foresee and forecast energy supply and demand combined with a distributed set of energy use and supply is a really powerful mix because not only then do you have distributed energy but you also can have distributed risk. So in terms of grid reliability, uh, when you have multiple sources and uses of energy, provided we've got good visibility of that and that's where the digital technology comes in. So I'm aware of one study in one state that's looked at what would happen to the grid if every household owned an electric car and wanted to charge it. Could the grid cope? And the result was, yes, absolutely, without augmentation, provided that the chargers had two-way communication technology so that the grid manager could see the visibility of where the supply and demand was. So that's the future that we could plan for and you could get it wrong if you failed to create the ability for that visibility, um, by which we mean if, if we can't connect the grid managers to the batteries and the car charging households, for example, then we have a blind grid manager rather than a grid manager with good visibility. But certainly what was interesting in those results was it wasn't uh, new storage or grid network capacity that was needed. It was just the ability to manage what was already there or would be there if every car, if every household had an electric car that wanted to be charged. So thinking about two-way control mechanisms, not just to communicate but to be able to switch on and off, is a new form of thinking for grid managers and the owners of those technologies in each home. I think what's going to happen in the future of the market is demand response is, I call the 1980s kind of phenomenon, where, um, and this is where you've been in, I've been in this industry for a very long time, and industry has always said, large industry has said that if it's profitable for them to shift when they use electricity because of the price of electricity and that makes it more of an economic choice, they're willing to do so. So demand response is not a new thing at all in in the electric industry. This is CEO of AEMO, Audrey Zibelman. 
What's changing now with rooftop solar and storage at a localized level is that it used to be in this industry that the usage of electricity, while highly predictable, we could always tell you on a 25-degree day in Melbourne on January 21st what the usage was going to look like in the middle of the week. Now we don't know that because we have so many changes and so much rooftop solar, etc. So demand is unpredictable. The other thing we used to always do is just worry about high electric demand. Now we worry about high electric demand and low electric demand because now sometimes we just, as I said, don't, don't even have enough usage available. So what we're really looking for is not demand response, but price responsive demand, which sounds a little bit like an arcane thing, but what we really want people to think about is how we can sell a product that if someone came to your house and said that I can guarantee you, you have rooftop solar, I can guarantee you your electric bill will never exceed $50 a month. And I can also guarantee you that your thermostat will always be set at the level you want and your machines will be available, your washing machine, your air conditioner will all be available when you want it. All I need to do is be able to help work with you to make sure that when the price on electricity is right in the market or the needs are there, we could either be selling excess energy or consuming. And with that, I can promise you a fixed bill. That's where I think Nirvana is going to be. I don't think customers really want to be active players. But if we can manage the use of electricity so it's very efficient, enough use when we need it, and not too much use when we don't need it, and find a way to really pay customers for that either as a credit on their bill or a payment or a flat rate, that, that's where this industry needs to go. And I think where we will be heading very quickly as we start to develop a responsive demand as a product that people will take advantage of, but hopefully, if we do it right, not have to worry about. To help manage the challenges associated with distributed energy and ensure the best integration of these new technologies, ARENA, along with AEMO and Energy Networks, have created the Distributed Energy Integration Program. So it's a project where there's about 12 market bodies have got together to sort of share knowledge. This is Darren Miller again. Uh, share insights into, into their particular areas. So the networks, the poles and wires companies, the market operator, the rule setting body, the governing body, the, the regulator, ARENA, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We've all got a role to play in promoting and solving distributed energy. And so we've come together to effectively share notes and agree on what are the most pressing problems that need our attention. Uh, So it's really a collaborative effort and a a way to share knowledge and bring the industry together that ARENA has been at the centre of, uh, and it's been a very successful program to date. Smarter distributed technologies allow the market operator to create what's known as a virtual power plant. Home solar systems could become visible to the market. This would allow AEMO to direct batches of solar systems and throttle power towards the grid when it's needed to ensure stability. They could be visible via an aggregator who uh, collects up the solar and arranges to have access to managing the solar output and the batteries in 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 homes and treats that as a virtual power plant and makes that visible to the operator, the AEMO. Whether AEMO directly interacts with millions of distributed resources or far fewer aggregators, uh, I don't know which is the most likely outcome. 
but in principle, it's all the same. So you can have hundreds of virtual power plants through aggregators, or you could treat the whole of the national electricity market as one giant virtual power plant if AEMO was directly talking to every single one of those rooftop solar and battery installations. Having all these distributed resources on your home sounds great, but what if you live in an apartment? Can you still take part in this distributed energy future? So quite um, interestingly, people outside of the industry um, are often quite amazed when they hear this, but there's actually not a viable technology to be able to give apartments solar, um, especially not in the sort of the five to 50 odd um, apartment building that our technology sort of specialises in. This is Jack Taylor from Alum Energy. Alum, with support from Arena, is working to solve the solar distribution problem for apartment buildings. They've created a device called SolShare. It allows owners to invest in rooftop solar and share the benefits amongst everyone in the building. So um, that's why um, you'll very, very rarely see an apartment building with solar on the roof. So it's a, it's a huge waste. There's a, there's, a, there's a massive market out there and there's a huge volume of, of people, not just in Australia, but across the world, who live in apartments and, and can't get access to this amazing um, bit of technology, which is solar energy. So we manufacture the solar share and uh, it unlocks that solar for apartment living and, uh, and businesses. What that means is that um, apartment buildings and, and businesses, where there's uh, multiple units within the building, can share a communal rooftop solar system. The sort of electronics behind it and the software behind it um, optimizes the delivery. So everybody uses their appliances at slightly different times. So our technology knows when people need energy and will send the solar energy to those people at the times when they're going to need it. So they save the most amount of money. But we also um, have worked very hard on the fact that if everybody's bought into this, if lots of apartment uh, owners have bought into the system and paid the same amount into it, they all want to have a fair system. So um, what it does as well is it makes sure that everybody receives the same amount of energy um, over the course of a month within an apartment building. Given the balance of power in our energy grid is changing and homeowners will play a greater role in delivering our energy needs, what does the future of our homes actually look like? So I think we've already got a glimpse of what the home of the future looks like. It, it has solar, it has electric vehicles, it has batteries, it's got smart switches, LEDs, it's got software controlling things. It both has a, an emissions reduction element to it, it has a cost reduction element to it because things like solar reduce your home electricity bills. It also has a lifestyle benefit to it because through data and digitization and, and smarter hardware and software, we will gain lifestyle advantages through that technology as well. For Howard and Libby Elston, they already feel like they're living in the home of the future and would love to see the sustainable, energy-efficient design choices they've made become the norm. My outlook, I think, has changed in two ways. One is I'm more optimistic around you can do something and, and then the other thing is I'm a bit pessimistic about how quickly we can do it. it. It does take effort to try and get this sort of stuff to be more well known. And, and that's part of what we're trying to do, to let people know. I just get sad sometimes. I think, well, why is it happening faster than this? 
because we're experiencing the thing, well, why wouldn't everybody want to be in this sort of more sustainable, more comfortable house? But I can understand that there are reasons for that. You know, it, it's a big system. It does take a while to change it. I, I just hope it would change faster. And, and maybe that's what will happen. The more of these you see, the quicker it will go because it will just become accepted. I'm hoping one day you won't have to say sustainable home. You just go, it's a home. And people will instantly know, oh, it's got all those features in it that we take for granted. You know, it's low maintenance, it's low energy, it's comfortable, it's airy. It does all those things because that's the way we build houses these days. In the next episode of Rewired, what impact will electric vehicles have on our energy needs? The charging experience is always plug your car in and kind of walk off to go and get a coffee or something to eat. So people don't hang around holding the plug in the same way that they would hold the petrol pump whilst they're charging their car. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. We work to support Australia's energy transition. Since 2012, we've provided $1.4 billion in grant funding to more than 500 projects. You can find out more about our distributed energy integration program on our website, arena.gov.au.